0: Good morning. Good to see you. My name is Josh, one of the pastors here. And uh, glad you could be with us this morning as we continue our series, Life in the Age of Outrage. And uh, I wonder, as you came in this morning, any of you, uh, who likes a good Happy Meal? I do, man. I loved these things growing up. And uh, you know, the best thing apart of Happy Meal is what? The toy. Money. They're right. Exactly. It's the toy in the box. When I was a kid, I loved getting Happy Meals, and like father, like son. So does my four-year-old son Charlie. He's all about Happy Meals because in a Happy Meal, if you're not familiar, if you've never gotten one, uh, you get you know a burger, uh, which I got a toy one here, made of wood. But you know, real one. If I'd have gotten it the other day, it'd probably be about the same consistency right now we got a burger. We got, uh, Or you can get chicken nuggets. You know, Charlie actually likes to get chicken nuggets, and he's all about the sweet and sour sauce. I'm kind of a barbecue guy myself. And then uh, you can get milk with it. When I was a kid, you, you just got pop. I mean, you got a, you got a Coke or an a orange high C. Oh, that was the best. And uh, so now they're trying to be a little healthier so you can get milk. Or like the picture on the screen, you know, uh, there's apples that you can get with it now, which it's kind of like, what's the point of that? What? No kid wants apples, it's a Happy Meal. They want that toy, because that's the big thing. Right now, if you go get a Happy Meal, you can get a little Marvel toy. And uh, so here's one of them, in case you need one. Well, my wife and Charlie were on their way. Uh, Hannah had an appointment in Fort Wayne this week, and it was the same day that I was supposed to be in Chicago uh, with a mentoring group I'm part of there and so I can get away to hang out with Charlie and so she took him along with her and she has a friend in Columbia City to drop Charlie off at and it was around lunchtime so what they do they drove through McDonald's to get some lunch and Charlie knew exactly what he wanted he wanted a happy meal and he wanted it with chicken nuggets sweet and sour sauce and french fries and he also he really wanted the toy he just didn't say that but that's what he wanted well, they got it. They, he got a Sprite with it. They got to her friend's house and, you know, they get out, they unpack it. They pull out the nuggets. He's got his Sprite, pull out the French fries and that was all there was in the box. No toy. But mom, where's the toy? I don't, I don't know, Charlie. There's no toy. But there's supposed to be a toy. And you don't, you don't know the trauma this causes in the heart of a four-year-old Who's anxiously awaiting his little plastic toy from his Happy Meal. So uh, that, uh, his, his frustration turned to panic, turned to despair, a little bit of shock and some sadness, and then that turned to anger, and then, then came the tears. And it was just the water works, right? And that slowly turned to outrage. And, and my son, bless his heart, uh, he, has a ve- he, he sees the world very black and white. Uh, he, he has a very strong sense of right and wrong. And this was wrong. This is wrong. In fact, the one thing he said, we've been laughing about it all week. Uh, M- but mom, I mean, it breaks your heart hearing it. But, but, but mom, it was on the sign. Like, It said it on the sign, you're supposed to get it. It's on the sign, mom, you're supposed to get a toy. Oh, the poor little guy who just broke his heart. I wonder, do you ever have that experience? You know, something wrong happens to you. Maybe it's something that somebody else did or forgot. Maybe it's something you did. But you've been wronged and it's heartbreaking. How do you respond to that wrong You know, something that never should have happened. How do you respond to it? It should have never happened. I mean, or something should have happened. It was was on the sign, mom. (laughs) How do you respond to those wrongs? What do you do? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, We're in our series, uh, Life in the Age of Outrage. And last week we talked about love and the importance of love for a world uh, and people, even that we may find ourselves disgusted with at times and how disgust destroys our ability to love people. And we elevate uh, their sin above our own, thinking of ourselves maybe better than them. And so we don't love them the way we ought to well today we're going to look at how we respond to wrongs in our series life in the age of outrage and there are there are plenty of things plenty of wrongs plenty of sin to be angry about Uh, as you know uh this series is inspired in many ways from a book by, the guy, by a guy by the name of Ed Stetzer called Christians in the Age of Outrage. I'd recommend it to you, um, encourage you to read it, and uh, today's message, uh, Pastor Dave taught a, a couple weeks ago on anger, and today is really going to build off of that, and you're going to hear a lot of the same same themes and some of the same things, and uh, I believe this is an issue in our day and age and in our culture where uh, where we need to to be angry about the things we ought to be angry about, not angry about the things that don't matter. And when we are angry, to do so in a way that honors the Lord, that's in line with the ways that he gets angry. So that's where we're headed today. You wanna to pray with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us through him. And uh, Lord, thanks that uh, you are, as we'll see, slow to anger. but you're abounding in steadfast love. And even when you... Uh, do get angry, your anger is only uh, intended to draw us closer to you, that we would turn from our sinfulness and turn from our ways and turn Jesus to you because you love us so much. Holy Spirit, would you teach me even as I teach? And um, uh, might Jesus, you be made much of today. We pray all this in your name, amen. Well, I've said it already, but there are things that we must be angry about. That as followers of Jesus, we must get angry about. We all face things to be angry about, and, and some of those things we must be angry about. You know, uh, some of you last week you're like, "All this love stuff. What about anger? When do I get to be angry?" Well, today's your day. Glad you're here. Others of you, though, you might have, you might read this or hear this and say, "Really, Josh? We must." Must be angry? That seems kind of strong, doesn't it? That we're in a sense almost like you're saying we're commanded to be angry? Well, I think there are things that we must be angry about that God calls us to be angry about and angry with. And you might say, well, what about Ephesians 4, 26? Well, Ephesians 4.26 doesn't say not to be angry. It says be angry and don't sin. Don't sin in your anger. There's a big difference there, isn't it, between saying don't be angry and be angry and don't sin. In fact, uh, Paul goes on after he writes this. He says, don't even let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity for the devil. Uh, Don't hold on to it. Uh, Deal with it. And in that anger, don't sin. So uh, evidently, uh, we can sin in our anger. We've talked a lot about that over the last few weeks, but there are things, as we're talking now, what are some things then we must be angry about? How do we be angry and not sin? And what is it we ought to be angry about? Well, I would say things that anger God. If something angers God, we too ought to be angered by it. Pastor Dave taught us well on this a few weeks ago. And uh, we're to be angry about the things that anger God. And, and God's anger, when he's angry about something, it's, it's a righteous anger. Or you may have heard, you know, a righteous indignation, right? So what does that mean? A righteous anger? Well, first, we got to remember when we did, we're talking about God's anger, his righteous anger, that's the correct order. He's righteous and his righteousness then at times demands his anger, And to pursue righteousness at times means we too must be angry at times. Well, God is not first and foremost angry. Maybe you've thought that sometimes in your life or people have even expressed that to you in in some way that, that God is just angry with you. Listen, God is not first and foremost angry. He's first and foremost righteous and loving and steadfast. And we'll see that this morning. Uh, And his righteousness means that he is perfectly and completely right in all his ways. That's what righteousness means. It means rightness. Righteousness, think rightness. And, And so in other words, whatever God does at any time, all of his ways, the psalmist writes, are altogether righteous. He's always right. He's always holy. He's always perfect. His, so, so righteous anger then is right anger anger about things that we ought to be angry about angry about things that matter uh, correct anger okay so righteous anger Josh It's I can be angry but not sin so well, let's get back to the question what is it that God's angry about and then uh, by association what should we be angry about well let, let's talk about a few of those first off sin sin in ourselves do you ever find yourself angry at yourself because of your sin? Maybe something you did, something you said, a choice that you made. And that sort of anger about the sin in your life is right. But it's also right at the same time to, uh, to understand God's grace for sin, that he loves you, he forgives you, he, he gives you another chance, he welcomes you back with open arms. But that that anger over sin in our lives—that's a right thing. We ought to be angry about the sin in our lives, right? How about uh, sin in the world, or sin in other people? Things that, in other words, things that are, are, are an assault on God's glory, on His rightness. Those are things we ought to be angry about, because God gets angry about those things, and we ought to be angry about them as well. Uh, like injustice. We ought to be angry about injustice. We, we read from Micah 6, 8 earlier. What does the Lord require of you to do what? Justice. So when there's injustice, what am I supposed to do? Justice. And, but at the same time, to love mercy, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God, recognizing he, he's the judge, not me. <laughs> but, but we should be angry about injustice. Uh, the writer of Proverbs says in uh, Proverbs eight thirteen, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Uh, Pastor Dave referenced this a couple weeks ago. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, things he gets angry about, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, one who sows discord among brothers. What are we angry about? Injustice. About things that that God is angry about. How about the effects of sin? Do you ever get angry about the effects of sin? How How about death? Do you ever get angry about death? Jesus was angry with death. When Maybe some of you, you've lost someone close to you, and the right response to that is anger. Jesus, let me tell you the story. Jesus had a couple friends, Mary, Martha, and they were sisters, and they had a brother named Lazarus, and Lazarus became ill. And he eventually gets so ill that uh, he dies. But before he dies, Mary and Martha, they send for Jesus because they don't know what else to do at this point. And so they say, Jesus, you've got to come. Lazarus, our brother, the one you love, he, he's sick. You've got to come see him. And uh, Jesus actually its curious. He waits a couple days and then he goes. And then by the time he gets there, Lazarus has been dead for a couple days. It's in John chapter 11. And as he's coming up, to the home. Martha runs out to meet him. And Lord, if you had only been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And he asks about Mary. Mary comes and Mary runs to him. And uh, Mary, her sister, who uh, by all accounts seems to be maybe a little more tender hearted. Mary's weeping and uh, the, the mourners. And that day you would hire people to mourn and wail with you at, at, at a funeral. And, and they come with her out to meet Jesus and they're weeping and they're wailing. And When they come to Jesus, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. Now, uh, I'm not a Greek scholar, but this word in Greek can also mean indignant, that he was angry, that he was greatly troubled. It shows up again in verse 38. And I think it's a good translation to say that he was angry in his spirit. He was greatly troubled troubled. Why was he angry? He was angry because of the effects of sin. And what were some of the effects at this point? Well, natural death, that's an effect of sin. The weeping and mourning of his friends. Maybe others weeping and wailing and mourning, just putting on a show may have made him upset and greatly troubled. I, I don't know. But he was certainly angry about death and about the effects of the fall, the effects of sin. And we should be angry about these things too. Another example of Jesus being angry is angry at an apathetic, hard heart. You know, we we ought to be angry when, when, just with how quickly we can grow cold and numb in our heart towards people. We talked about love last week, but we all, I mean, We could go around and we could all share stories if we're honest, you know, if if God could put our hearts up on the screen and including mine, we'd see all kinds of examples of times where our heart was cold and numb and wasn't loving. Mark chapter three, we see this with Jesus getting angry about it. He said, again, he entered the synagogue and there was a man there with a withered hand and they watched, meaning uh, they watched Jesus, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, uh, before we we're too harsh on them, they, they've really started off with, with, uh, with a good view towards, towards wanting to do what pleases God. But over time, in, in wanting to do that, they started adding rules and fences outside of other fences of things to keep them from ever breaking God's commands. And in doing so, these fences that they set up farther and farther out became more important to them than God's commands themselves. And so one of those was uh, rules they imposed on what was allowable on the Sabbath, which is the day this is happening. Is they, so they watched him to see whether he would heal this guy with the withered hand on the Sabbath. Why? Well, they weren't watching just to watch Jesus. They wanted to accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, he said, come here. And he, he said to them, he said to the Pharisees, hey, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? Is that Okay. Or uh, or to do harm. Which one, which one is okay, according to your rules on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? Which, which one fits in your rules? You know, which one is it? But they were silent. You get to verse five. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. I, I think... One of the things we can be angry about is is hardness of our own hearts at times, hardness in the hearts of others. But notice, Jesus' anger isn't like anger in terms of outrage. What accompanies it? What accompanies his righteous anger? A grieved spirit. A good test of whether our anger is truly righteous or not, one true test is, is it accompanied with with a certain sadness? Sadness. Or is it just accompanied with a desire for revenge and to get what I want? a certain sadness of, of an affront to God's glory, of to his ways. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus, trying to figure out how to destroy him, how to kill him. See, there's certain things we must be angry about. We could, we could talk about that all morning if we wanted to, going through scripture. But you know, there's other times too where our lack of anger actually can contribute to outrage in the world. Like in other words, when, when we don't do that, there's things we should be angry about. And when we don't, when we're not, it actually can contribute to the outrage in our culture. <clears throat> Sometimes a Christian's uh, lack of anger and the church's lack of anger contributes to outrage in the world. I mean, you know, when when we're not angry about it, don't speak about certain things. How about like racial injustice? That's something, as followers of Jesus, we ought to be angry about. We ought to be. Are you angry about that? Yeah. Give you an example, we saw a, a story from, from Tyler up in Detroit earlier. and uh, Tyler is a great guy. God's doing great things in their church in Detroit. And uh, But if you didn't notice, Tyler's maybe looks a little different than, than I do. And our churches definitely look a little different from one another. And uh, so let me give you an example here of maybe sometimes where we don't, don't speak into an issue of justice and then we're perceived to be as uncaring. Sometimes this happens among Christians with one another. So let's say you, we came to our church, somebody came and they said, Hey, are you guys pro-life? Do you value life? What would you say? Yeah, absolutely. God values life. That's Totally, incredibly important. Well, if you would go to, and I, again, I haven't talked to Tyler about this, but if you would go to a church like his, and I do know many, uh, you would say, hey, are you guys pro-life? And I know Tyler's church would say yes. Would They would say, absolutely, yeah, for sure, 100%. Then if you come back to our church, you know, kind of a little lighter, paler skin, a little different complexion among us, and you'd say, uh, uh, what is the number one issue of, of Justice as it relates to pro-life of injustice. Likely, the, the, one of the main things that would come out is the issue of abortion. Abortion's sin, abortion's wrong. It's, it's taking of an innocent life made in the image and likeness of almighty God. Uh, it's, it's, it's a wickedness, right? Now, if you've been affected by that, there's forgiveness for that, just like there is anything else, and God loves to forgive and welcome you back, Right? But if you would go to, to a different church, more of an inner city church, different ethnic makeup than our church, and you would say, well, okay, you're pro-life, what's the number one issue of injustice that you see? Likely, the answer that would come back would not be abortion, but it'd be racial injustice and the need for reconciliation. Now, who's wrong? Who's right? It's very easy then for for. Two groups of people who both love the Lord Jesus, who both agree that that God is a God of life, uh, could think that the other maybe was insensitive because of their lack of concern about an issue as they saw it. And a lack of expression of anger on, on this issue, but only this issue both of them relate to the fact that we're made in the image of God and it's an affront to God's glory when either a life is assaulted in the womb or a life is assaulted just because of the color of their skin or their ethnicity. Both are are against life as God's designed it. Great spot for an amen. Amen? I mean, they are. But but when we don't speak to those things or we speak to one and and are silent with another, what can happen is the world can perceive us or even other Christians can perceive us as uh, being uncaring and it can contribute to misunderstanding and to outrage. There are certain things we must be angry about and that we must speak truth to. We must. Because there are things that God is angry about. Now, Here's the deal though. It always has to happen in the same way that God gets angry. We must get angry about some things, but it must be in the same way that God gets angry. I told you, I mentioned already uh, the book Christians in the Age of Outrage by Dr. Ed Stetzer. I want to read to you. He talks about this issue in his book. He says, the age of outrage has succeeded in trapping Christians by wrapping itself in one very appealing lie, The center of this lie is a bait and switch trying to pass off outrage as righteous anger and we try to disguise our worldly anger behind appeals to theological or ethical justification. We need to be angry, the logic goes, because of all the sin in the world. And that's what makes the lie sometimes so powerful there is a lot in this world to anger us and scripture does call us to be angry about many things yet while this lie originates from a truthful premise the lie develops when we conveniently ignore the fact that not all anger is the same righteous anger for instance must be wait for it he writes i love this it must be righteous righteous anger must be righteous remember righteousness rightness In other words, it must be correct. It means that God's looking for a certain character about our anger. More than uh, simply not being angry, we're called to be angry at the right things and in the right way. To be angry about sin in our world, standing up on behalf of the oppressed, speaking truth into situations where truth needs to be spoken, but always doing it in the same way that God would do it. With the same heart that he does. He does. When Dave taught us a couple weeks ago, uh, we looked at James chapter one, verse 20, right? Do you remember? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Well, it's a great, James knew his Bible because God described himself this way to Moses. Exodus chapter 34, verse five The Lord descended in the cloud and he stood with him there, stood with Moses and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, God is he describes himself first as first and foremost as a god who's merciful who's gracious who who does get angry but is slow to anger There are things to be angry about but we should do so always in the same way God does See, he goes on, I didn't read the rest of verse 7, he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, God takes sin and and wrongs and affronts to his glory very seriously, but he's slow to get angry. And and when he goes about those things, why is it that God gets angry over sin? Why? I mean, it, it, it mars... His glory, right? It's like throwing an egg at it. But it's also for our good that he gets angry because he wants to draw us back to him and away from wickedness and towards what's good and best. When you discipline your children, why do you do it? Because it's fun? Hopefully not. You do it because you love them and you want them to turn back. And to do what's right. It's the same with our God. It's, it's, it's just amazing. The primary way God describes himself to us is not as a God who's angry with sin. And, and he is angry with sin. But first and foremost, he's mercil- merciful. I'm having trouble with that word today. Merciful. Gracious and loving with a steadfast love. He's slow to anger. See, when I, have a, when I have a steadfast love, it allows me to speak truth. It allows me to be angry and also be merciful and not sin. Even in his anger, God's heart is to restore us. So God gets angry slowly and rightly, and that's how we ought to as well. And you know, let's just compare this right type of anger to be angry rightly with worldly outrage. Uh, I, I would, I've, I've said a few times already, righteous anger is usually sparked by an affront or an assault on God's glory, right? When God's glory is assaulted, God gets angry because that's of most value, most worth. But when, when we get angry with a, with a worldly outrage, the anger of man we learned about a couple weeks ago, Usually that's in a response to an assault, not on God's glory, but my idols. (laughs) Usually it's when somebody threatens my idols that I get angry. Outrage is nothing but a cheap imitation of righteous anger. And what we get angry about is a telling diagnosis of what it is that we worship. It's a telling diagnosis of what we worship. You're like, Josh, I don't have any idols. I don't have any little carvings setting up on my nightstand or hanging from my rearview mirror in my car. What are you talking about, idols? Well, I've shared this grid with you before, but let me share it again. You might think of idols in a way to kind of self diagnose in this way just use the word idols and map it out as an acronym. Items. What are some things that you idolize, that you find your identity in? Uh, four-year-old me would have resonated very much with my four-year-old son about the item I didn't get and that was a threat to my idol and so I too would have been angry and as a dad I would have been angry because it's a threat to sometimes my idol of my kid's happiness at times right where our hearts are idol factories items can be an idol we don't stay too, it's here too long D duties things that you do your activity sometimes can be an idol you can find your identity in uh, in what you do for me I can find my identity and make being a pastor or being a leader or whatever that looks like an, an idol being a dad and an idol and I can ascribe more worth to that than to Jesus now notice all of these things are not bad things in and of themselves are they They're bad when they become, this good thing becomes an ultimate thing. It becomes an idol. And and when I, my anger reveals what it is I'm making an ultimate thing, what I get angry about. Uh, Others can be an idol. Confess to this in the first service, man, I I struggle being a people pleaser at times. And others can be an idol for me and what they think of me. And L is longings. Longings can be an idol. I I long for that thing. I long to be married. I long to have children. I long for fill in the blank. Longings can be an idol. It's a good thing, but it can become an ultimate thing. Sometimes even our suffering can become an idol and we'll find our identity in what we've done or what's been done to us. And so uh, we make that the ultimate scope through which we see life and not Uh, who God made us to be and his forgiveness and and what he's doing in us. And and we can make even our suffering be an idol to where we we always find our identity in relation to that suffering. Well, in case you hadn't heard enough about the election this week, I thought I'd read to you a little bit. Sound good? I thought, you know, you probably were starved for wondering what happened with the election this week. (laughs) Didn't see any news, nothing. But I want to read to you from a book by the name of Tim Keller, And this book uh, is called Counterfeit Gods. And he comes after uh, the ways that we worship counterfeit gods and idols, in other words. And specifically here, he writes in one chapter about the signs of political idolatry. Now, this is a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I want to read it because I think it's maybe helpful to us right now. Helpful to some of you, at least. One of the signs that an object, he writes, is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. When we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. We don't say what a shame or how difficult or how hard this is, but rather we say, this is the end, there's no hope. This may be a reason why so many people now respond to US political trends in such an extreme way. When either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks openly about leaving the country. They become agitated and fearful for the future. They've put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that once was reserved for God and for the work of the gospel. And when their political leaders are out of power, they experience a death. They believe that if their policies and people are not in power, everything will fall apart. They refuse to admit how much agreement they actually have with the other party and instead focus on the points of disagreement. The points of contention overshadow everything else, and a poisonous environment is created. Another sign of idolatry in our politics is that opponents are not considered simply mistaken, but to be evil. After the last presidential election, my 84-year-old mother observed, it used to be that whoever was elected as your president, even if he wasn't the one you voted for, he was still your president. But that doesn't seem to be the case any longer. After each election, there's now a significant number of people who see the incoming president lacking moral legitimacy. The increasing political polarization and bitterness we see in U.S. politics today is a sign that we've made political activism into a form of religion. So how does idolatry produce fear and demonization? Well, uh, Keller goes on to quote a Dutch-Canadian philosopher by the name of Al Walters. And uh, Walters uh, teaches that in the biblical worldview, the main problem of life is sin. And the main solution is God and his grace and Jesus Christ. And the alternative to this view view is to identify something other than sin as the problem and something other than God and Jesus' grace as the solution. And so what happens is that other thing that's not entirely evil, like the other political candidate, becomes entirely evil and something that's not entirely good, like my political candidate, becomes entirely good when they're not entirely good And it replaces sin, which is what's really evil, and God's grace, which is what's really needed to fix it. Do you see how that works? And that happens in every area for us as it relates to idolatry. And what we get angry about ultimately reflects what it is, it betrays what we're worshiping. Now, here's the the thing. We are super complex people. We are high maintenance people, and we have just this mix of sometimes we're, we get angry about right things, but mixed in with it is all of our own junk and some of the idols we worship. And so, it's this—it's it's a lot of work sometimes to peel apart what I'm rightly angry about and what I'm not rightly angry about. That comes by work of repentance and staying close to Jesus. See, uh, your candidate, whoever it might be, uh, won or lost. Or we'll win or lose. But the church will win or lose based on how we respond and what we really get angry about. And that requires the fruit of self-control, doesn't it? It requires that fruit to be ripened in us by the power of God's spirit. We need self-control. We need humility. Galatians 5, 22, 23 talks about the fruit of the spirit. We spent nine weeks discussing it. And self-control, really what it is, is self-control isn't self-management. Self-control is uh, denying power to my old self and yielding control to my new self. See, when you become a Christian, if you're not one yet, when you become one and you trust Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and he makes you brand new. You become brand new, totally new. And so the things that, that, that were true about you in the past, now, even if you might continue to struggle with those things, you're, you're, you're dead to those things, and you're no longer uh, controlled by those things, but, but you can be controlled by the Spirit. And so you can deny power to the old way of thinking and, and maybe some of those old idols, and you can yield power to your new self and to the Spirit and to, to putting Jesus on the throne. And self-control is, is, is a major part of, if we're gonna be angry in the right way in the way that God is angry, how does God get angry? He's slow to anger, but he's also, he's very measured in his anger. Go read Revelation chapter eight this week. You can read chapter six through eight and look at some of the judgments of God as they're meted out at the end of time before Jesus' return. Is God just flying off the handle, doing all kinds of crazy things? Like he's just lost it, man. No, no. He's very measured A quarter of the earth His wrath falls on a third of the earth A, a third of the seas A, a third of the land it's, it's very measured and meted out And under control Again, if, if you find your anger out of control That's not righteous anger that's, that's giving power to the old self Not yielding it to your new self it's not right anger. You're gonna talk about um and more. Again, we've been talking about it, but we're gonna talk more about it in your life group this week, some of the attributes of of outrage, the way it can be disproportionate and selfish and divisive and but we're called to be angry in the same way that God gets angry. Uh, sometimes too, that just means being very patient and We don't have to fix every single wrong that comes our way. You ever ever read through Proverbs? Proverbs 26, 4, and 5? Two back to back Proverbs that seem to say the exact opposite thing. One says, uh, Don't answer a fool according to his folly. And the other says, Answer a fool according to his folly. Well, which one is it? Do I engage with them or do I not? Well, it's the yielding control to the Spirit to give you wisdom to know that sometimes engaging that foolish controversy is only going to cause more outrage. Sometimes engaging that is going to cause repentance and takes the Spirit's wisdom to know which is which. Well, as we kind of wrap things up here, there are things we must get angry about, but in the same way God gets angry, and here's why. Because we're sent, friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are sent as a representative of his kingdom. of his kingdom not to guard your own idols but to guard his glory and to to give him glory we're to represent him so so you might want to think what is it that you're to accomplish then what has God sent you to do Colossians 3.17 whatever you do or say do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ sent to love people to invite them to follow Jesus with you as a representative of his kingdom. You know, sometimes that perfectly placed, really witty, sarcastic comment can feel so good. But but it doesn't build Jesus' kingdom, does it? So we need to think about those things, that we're representatives of Jesus' kingdom. And recognizing he's the ultimate judge, Romans 12, 19, behold, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. So, uh, friends, as we head out this week, when um, you find yourself angry, because we all do, sometimes on a daily basis, right? W- what's, what's your anger saying? What's it pointing to? Is it pointing to being angry about God's glory or angry about your idols? And does Pastor Dave uh, rightly taught us a couple weeks ago, uh, another great diagnostic for you is Is your anger <clears throat> drawing you closer to God and closer to other people because that's what God's anger does, right? His desire is to draw us closer to him or is it pushing you away from other people and away from God? Let's pray.